Hello, friends, church. It's so good to see all of you. Happy Fourth of July weekend. My name is Chris Warder. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And at this point, I'd invite you, would you grab your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter, chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is where we find ourselves today. And as you turn there, I got to say, it is really, really good to see all of you. I haven't been here for a while. It's been a few weeks. And I actually want to give you an update because there's a reason why I haven't been here for a few weeks. And that is because a couple of weeks ago, my wife, Tanya, she had her follow-up surgery from her breast cancer diagnosis last year. So some of you know this, but in uh, last year, uh, my wife got diagnosed with stage 2 breast cancer. And almost exactly a year ago to the day, I can't believe it, uh, she underwent a double mastectomy to, uh, in order to take that cancer out. Well, finally, and all that went really well, just so you know. Well, finally, a couple weeks ago, my wife got the go-ahead to have the second stage of that surgery, which is the reconstruction part of that. And so I took some time off to be with her and to be with the kids. And I want to tell you, everything went really, really well. And my wife is actually here tonight. She is. So, yeah. And... Um, in fact, in many ways, uh, this sort of brings to a close at least this chapter of this journey that we have been on. Uh, from here on out, really where we are is we're just with regular checkups every six months to make sure that the cancer doesn't come back. In fact, our next one I think is later this month. And so we'd love for you to pray for that and every six months from here on out. But I just want to say we are so grateful, one, to God for all that he has done in this and all that he has brought us through. And I am also so grateful to my church family because you have so supported us and prayed for us and encouraged us. And we are just so grateful to be a part of this church. So thank you for all of your support. And with that being said, we are now going to dive into our uh, second week of our sermon series, Living in Fantasyland, which is a series for the first part of the book of Ecclesiastes. And today, as we begin, I want to sort of get the lay of the land. So I'm going to read the passage we're going to take a look at today, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive in. So I'm in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We'll also have the words on the side screen. Solomon is writing here, and this is what he says. He says, I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what it was good, what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born into my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delight of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. Verse 10, I denied, denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. We'll stop right there. Interesting passage that we have ahead of us today. Let's pray and ask for God's wisdom as we begin. Father, we just thank you for your word, God. We thank you for the opportunity we have. Uh, we thank you for how real it is and how much it just touches the everyday lives of, of us day in and day out, even though it was written thousands of years ago. 
And God, as we come to this particular thorny and also, I think, very relevant passage, Lord, I pray that you would just speak through me and I pray that you would speak to all of us and that we would receive from this message and this passage what it is that you want us to receive. And so, God, we give this time over to you and we thank you in advance for what you're going to do. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as we begin here today and dive into this passage, I want to begin today by telling you a story. And the story involves a man who dies and instantly wakes up to find himself in what he believes to be heaven. And he finds himself in just sort of this fantasy world where, that is filled with just all this kind of magic. And what makes this world so, so magical is that instantly he is able to think about anything and, and it just appears in front of him. And so the first thing that the man does in this fantasy world is he imagines a big and elaborate mansion. And sure enough, the second he thinks about it, boom, it appears right in front of him. And it's just spectacular. It's three stories tall. It's 15 rooms, bedrooms, and and it's full of servants who are able to wait upon his every need. Well, as he begins to walk through this mansion and tour it, he realizes that a mansion like this has to be accompanied by the greatest of cars. And so all of a sudden he imagines the most expensive, rarest cars that he knew about during his time here on this earth. And boom, instantly, they all appear in his driveway. And he is either free to ride any one of them or at any moment he can imagine a chauffeur who will take over so that he can sit comfortably in the back seat. Well, after a while, he has ridden every car he can think of and he's gone to every corner of this fantasy world. And so he decides that it's time to focus on food. And so he gets home and he gets to the dining room of his mansion and he he imagines an elaborate banquet. And sure enough, boom, instantly in front of him, all the finest food for him to enjoy. Well, this lifestyle, it continues for several months, maybe even a couple of years. And after this time, this man has tried everything that there is to try. He has ridden every type of car he can think of. He has remodeled his mansion dozens of times in an instant. Uh, He has has eaten every type of food and every variation of every type of food. And after a while, guess what starts to happen? Well, he starts to get bored because he's tried it all and he's done it all. And so one day, bored and frustrated, this man, he calls one of his servants to him and he starts to complain. He says, this is miserable. He says, there's nothing new to try. There's nothing new to do. He says, I can't even work with my hands because every time I think about something, it just appears. And so he says to his servant this, he says, this place is terrible. In fact, he says, in fact, I'd rather be in hell than be here. Well, at this last statement, this servant got a surprised look on his face. And he stared intently at the man, and after a couple of moments, he leaned in, and he said this. He said, well, tell me, sir, where exactly do you think you are? And it's sort of a chilling story, isn't it? But i got to tell you, ever since I heard Pastor Chuck Swindoll first tell that story in his own series in Ecclesiastes, I've always loved it. And the reason I've loved it is because I think it accurately exposes what I believe is one of the greatest false beliefs that exists today. And that's a false belief that we're going to deal with head on in this passage in Ecclesiastes. 
Today, in this sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes, we get the opportunity to really get to what is the heart of the book of Ecclesiastes. As Matthew explained last week, the book of Ecclesiastes was originally written by this man by the name of Solomon, and Solomon is on a quest. Solomon was the king over Israel, and he was one of the wealthiest men who ever lived before, and he was the wisest man who ever lived before. And although Solomon had been raised believing in God, and therefore he had been raised believing that true meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction could only be found in God, one day, for whatever reason, Solomon turned his back on that belief. And so he began a quest to try and find these things apart from God. He began a quest to try and find meaning and lasting fulfillment and satisfaction without God in the picture. And really what the heart of the book of Ecclesiastes is, starting with the passage that we're taking a look at today, is it's about all these different things that Solomon tries in order to bring him what it is that he is looking for. And it's for that reason I think the book of Ecclesiastes is such a relevant book for us today. You know, as we have talked about several times, men and women, uh, these days fewer and fewer people than ever before say that they believe in God. And what that means is that means that more and more people are on a similar quest to the one that Solomon is on. They're looking for meaning. They're looking for purpose. They're looking for satisfaction. But they can't find these things in God because they don't believe in him. And so they're trying all these different things in order to find what brings lasting satisfaction in this life. Well, I'll tell you what. I could save those people a lot of time. Because Solomon, he tried it all. And all those people would have to do is just read through this book to see where all those different things lead us. And today we get the opportunity to talk about what is one of the most popular things that people in our world turn to in order to find lasting fulfillment and satisfaction. And that is pleasure. That is trying to live your life in such a way where you are free to follow any impulse and any desire that you have within you. And this is something that a lot of people in our day and age turn to. In fact, I was thinking this past week, this is, this is probably what fuels the lottery in many ways. And this is what keeps TikTok stars and Instagram influencers uh, employed, right? The dream for many people is to get to a place like the man I described at the beginning, to get to a place where you never have to say no to any wish or any desire in your life. That is the dream for many. But the question in front of us today, brothers and sisters, is, is that lifestyle really all it's cracked up to be? Does getting to a place where you can fulfill every wish and every desire that you have, does it really create a heaven on earth? Or is the reality a lot more like the man in the story that I told at the beginning? Though we think it would create a heaven, the reality is actually much different. So what is it? What does a life of nothing but endless pleasure, what does it lead to? Well, that's what Solomon is going to tell us. We pick it up again in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, where Solomon tells us about this quest that he is on. Verse 1, he says this again. He says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. He says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. And the key word there is obviously the word pleasure. And the Hebrew word translated pleasure there is the Hebrew word simcha. And it's a word that refers to self-indulgence and self-decadence. And I got to tell you, I love how Solomon phrases this here, right? Because he doesn't hold anything back. He doesn't hide anything. 
He says, on my quest for meaning and purpose and satisfaction, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to live by that mantra. If it feels good, I'm going to do it. I'm going to live my life according to pleasure, and I'm going to see where that leads me. And as I said, brothers and sisters, Solomon is not the only one to try this sort of thing. In fact, there are a number of people who try this sort of thing at one point in their life, including, I might say, a fair number of Christians. This past week, I was thinking back to my junior year of college. And some of you may know this, but when I got to college, I joined a fraternity my freshman year. And although when I first got to college, my faith was really on fire and I was all in for Jesus, or so I thought, for whatever reason, I decided not to join a Christian fraternity my freshman year at college, though those did exist. I decided instead to, to join a, a secular fraternity, a social fraternity. And I'll tell you what, men and women, when I first got to my fraternity, I held strong, okay? I didn't drink, I didn't party, uh, because I knew the Bible spoke against those things. And so for my first two years in college, I didn't do any of that. But then I got to my junior year of college, and I distinctly remember one day at the beginning of my junior year, I, look, I remember looking around at all my fraternity brothers. And I remember thinking, you know, it, it seems like they're having a lot more fun than I am. And this was really surprising to me because I had been told my whole life, right, that true meaning and true satisfaction is only found in Jesus. But many of my fraternity brothers, they didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't believe in God. In fact, if they had a God, it was pleasure, especially alcohol and drunkenness. But they seem to be doing pretty good for themselves. They seem to be having a good time. And so essentially my junior year, you know what I did? I did what Solomon does here in verse 1. I said to myself, you know, maybe it's time for me to try this. Maybe it's time for me to let loose a little bit and to follow my impulses and desires and to see where that gets me. And I don't think I'm the only Christian that has ever done that before. In fact, I won't ask for a show of hands here today because I don't want to get any of you in trouble, especially those of you who are with your children. But if I did, I would imagine there would be a few hands that would go up. That this is a common practice for Christians at some point in their life. Well, if you've ever had a season like this, I want to let you know you're in good company. Because this is what Solomon tried. For at least a season of his life, he decided that he was going to give his life over to pleasure. And if you were paying attention, as I read earlier, you would have seen that there were a few things that Solomon tries in his quest for pleasure. And we're going to put these things on the back wall as they unfold throughout this passage. The first thing that Solomon tries is he tries exactly what I tried in college. He tries partying. And that's what you see in verse 2. Now, many of your Bibles at the beginning of verse 2 probably have the word laughter there. But in my opinion, laughter is not the best translation of the underlying Hebrew word. The Hebrew word that Solomon uses here is a word that initially was used to refer to festivals and banquets that involved alcohol and that involved partying where alcohol flowed freely. And so basically it means to party. And I think that's the better translation. And so that's the first thing that Solomon tries here. In this quest for meaning and fulfillment through pleasure, he decides, hey, I'm going to let loose. I'm going to get drunk. I'm going to try alcohol, and I'm going to see where that leads me. But pretty quickly, it seems, Solomon realizes how empty that is. And that's what you see when you read verse 2 in its entirety. He says, laughter, or as I would translate it, partying, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? And there you see the conclusion that Solomon comes to. He says, partying is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? And by the way, I came to the same conclusion 
in college. You know, when I started partying in my fraternity, nobody told me what a couple of hours on fun on, on, on a Saturday night leads to on a Sunday morning. Partying takes a lot more than it gives. And I have been told that this gets even worse the older that you get. And Solomon was probably not pretty young when he tried this here. He was probably pretty advanced in years. And so pretty quickly he comes to this conclusion. He says, partying is madness. Why would anybody do this? And so he leaves that behind. He abandons that. But he doesn't leave pleasure behind. He just moves on to something else. And what's the second thing he tries? Well, you see that in verse 3. He says, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. And so what's the second thing that Solomon tries? Well, you see it there. He tries wine. He tries alcohol. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, but wait, Chris, isn't that exactly what Solomon did in verse 2? Well, no, not exactly. You see, in verse 2, it's clear that Solomon tried alcohol in order to get drunk. But in verse 3, it's clear he tries alcohol in a different way. That's what you see in that middle of that verse when he says this. He says, my mind's still guiding me with wisdom. And what many scholars believe that Solomon means by that is that when he turned to alcohol this time, he wasn't trying to get drunk. No, this time we might say he was trying to become a connoisseur of alcohol. He was trying to study wine. To see if that could lead to meaning and fulfillment. He was trying to drink alcohol in a more refined and sophisticated way. And incidentally, men and women, this is what a number of my fraternity brothers have turned to now that we're all in our 40s. You know, a number of my fraternity brothers, they don't get drunk all that often anymore, but they do drink. And they know a lot about drink. Some of my fraternity brothers, for example, are experts in wine, and they can tell you all about the different types of wine. Others of my fraternity brothers these days, they've become experts in whiskey and bourbon. And immediately they can take a sip of, of something and they can wax eloquently about the notes of nuttiness and floral and wood that they taste anything in these things. And that has never made sense to me because whenever I tried that in college, it just tasted to me like burning. It just tasted to me like fire. <laughs> But my, my fraternity brothers, some of them have become experts, and, 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 and their hobby is alcohol. And that's what Solomon turned to for a time. But for whatever reason, it seems like he doesn't stay with that for too long. Because very quickly, he moves on to something else. And that's what you see in verses 4, 5, and 6. In verses 4, 5, and 6, you see that Solomon, he moves on to work. And he moves on to busyness. In verses 4, 5, and 6, Solomon talks about how he started to undertake great projects. And he built gardens and parks and planted fruit trees and the like. And I know that this probably sounds pretty strange to some of you, right? That Solomon would consider work and busyness to be a form of pleasure. But if that sounds strange to you, it's clear that you have never met a workaholic before. I mean, there are some people, men and women, for whom work provides the greatest thrill of anything in this life. These are the people who struggle to take a day off. These are the people who struggle to take a vacation. I mean, there is some, for some people, work is the greatest pleasure of anything. And this is especially the case when that work is aimed at elevating your own sense of self-worth and self-status. And it's clear that that's Solomon's aim here. He's focused on his own self-fulfillment and his own self-satisfaction. And that's what's also behind the final two things that Solomon turns to. Excuse me. <clears throat> and those final two things are possessions and sex. It's accumulating stuff and it's sexual fulfillment. First, Solomon turns to accumulating stuff. 
And you see that in verse 7, in the beginning of verse 8, he says this. He says, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers. Stop right there. And here you see this obsession that Solomon has with stuff. I mean, it seems like he's trying out for an episode of hoarders, right? He's just obsessed with accumulating as much as he can. And so that's one thing he turns to. And then the final thing he turns to is he turns to sex. And that's what you see at the end of verse 8 when it says this. He says that he acquired a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. And so what we see here is we see that Solomon surrounded himself with, with all these women to satisfy any desire that he had. And indeed, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that Solomon, towards the end of his life, he had 700 wives and he had 300 concubines. Can you imagine that? I mean, Solomon was the Hugh Hefner of his day. He had it all. And so these are the things that Solomon pursued in his quest for pleasure, his quest for meaning and satisfaction through pleasure. And listen, I know that some of us look at this list and it seems a little bit excessive. It seems a little bit extreme. But understand, brothers and sisters, this truly is the dream of some people in this life. Not to pick on my fraternity brothers too much here because who knows whether or not they listen to my messages. And I promise you, none of them listen to any of my messages. But uh, listen, this is what many of them were after in college. And this is what many of them are still after today. Maybe not the 700 wives thing but everything else. It's what Solomon says in verse 9. Many of my, my friends from college, many of the people in the world today would love to say this about themselves. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. and all this, my wisdom stayed with me. That's the dream for many. And Solomon got to live it. But where did this leave him? What was the end result of it? Well, on the one hand, Solomon does admit that some of this stuff brought him some enjoyment. And that's what he says in verse 10. When he says this, he says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. And you see that phrase in the middle there where he says, my heart took delight in all my labor. And that's Solomon saying, you know what? I did enjoy some of what it was that I experienced. Some of what I did brought me some fun. I'm not going to deny that. That's what Solomon makes clear. But what Solomon also makes clear is that any enjoyment that he got from his pursuits, they were short-lived. And that's what Solomon makes clear in verse 11, which is his final word on this topic of pleasure. Verse 11, he says this. He says, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. And there you have it. Ultimately, this life lived for pleasure, it was meaningless. Or as we learned last week, the better translation of the Hebrew word there, hevel, it was fleeting. As he says there, it was a chasing after the wind. And, and what Solomon means by that is that any enjoyment that he got from his indulgence, it didn't last. In other words, he was empty before he tried all these things. And he was empty after he tried all these things. That's what his life of pleasure got him. And what I want to make clear to you today, men and women, is that is always the case with pleasure. 
And that is always the case with sin in general. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, no, you didn't just use that word, did you? And I did. And I'm going to use it again, sin. Because there's no mistaking that is exactly what is going on in this passage. The drunkenness, the accumulating things for the sake of accumulating things, the sex, the self-centeredness. For this season of his life, however long it lasted, what Solomon did is he removed God from the center of his life and he put pleasure at the center of his life. And there is only one word for that. And what is it? It's sin. That's what this passage is about. And therefore, what Solomon describes for us in verses 10 and 11, the conclusion that he comes to, both the enjoyment he got from this lifestyle and ultimately the emptiness of it, that is always the case with sin, men and women. That's always the case when we pursue things outside of God's will. I mean, make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters, there is some enjoyment That can be found in sin. That's why so many people try it in their life. That's why so many people give their lives over to it. In fact, I will confess myself. I still remember like it was yesterday, the first time I tried alcohol. And I won't lie to you. It was fun for a little bit. It brought rush for a time. I won't deny that. But here's the thing with sin, brothers and sisters. You know, in the business world, they sort of teach you a cardinal rule. And the cardinal rule they teach you in the business world is no matter what you do, never overpromise but underdeliver. Never promise something that you can't deliver on. Well, brothers and sisters, sin and pleasure, that's exactly what they, those things do. They overpromise but they underdeliver. You see, the first time that you encounter sin, often it is fun. It does provide a rush, it does provide a thrill, and it feels good. And in that way, what sin does is it whispers in our ear, hey, you do this, you're going to feel like this all the time. You give your life over to this, you're going to feel like this 24-7. And what do many people do? Well, many people believe what sin says. But what sin doesn't tell us, men and women, and what pleasure doesn't tell us, is they can't deliver on what it is that they promise us. What sin doesn't tell us, men and women, is that over time, it takes more and more of that sin to experience less and less of a thrill. It takes more and more of that pleasure to experience less and less of a high. In economics, they have a term for it. It's called the law of diminishing returns. And the same thing is true of sin and pleasure. You know, I'm convinced That the reason why those five people were willing to risk their lives in what seems like a very dangerous submarine endeavor is because many of those people, they lived a life like the man in the story I told at the beginning. They had done it all. And they had tried it all. And ordinary things couldn't thrill them anymore. I mean, how can you be satisfied with McDonald's when you've eaten the finest food every single day of your life? And so these people, they had to keep on trying more and more extreme things in order to experience any enjoyment in this life anymore. And it literally cost them their lives. And that's such an illustration of what sin does to us. Anybody who has ever struggled with an addiction before, you know that. That someone can try enough of something That they get to a place where they now need that drink or they need that cigarette or they need sex just to feel normal anymore. That what they once tried in order to provide a high is now what they need to no longer even feel miserable anymore. 
And the end result of that is enslavement. And if you don't get help quickly enough, the end result can be ruin and destruction. You may have heard this phrase before, it's about alcohol, but I think it can be applied to almost any sin. And the phrase is this, a man takes a drink, and then the drink takes the man. And I think you can universalize that. A person takes a step towards sin, and then sin takes that person. And all you have to do to see the truthfulness of that is look at the number of people in our world today who have everything that anybody could have ever wanted, the sports stars, the pop stars, and the celebrities. And it seems to me that a disproportionate number of them end up meeting tragic ends done in by the very thing that was supposed to provide fulfillment and satisfaction. And that is the warning that is inherent in this passage. You know, I think sometimes uh, people think that we pastors, when we warn about sex and we warn about alcohol and we warn about greed, that we're just trying to ruin everybody's fun. That we just want everybody to be as miserable as we are. Well, let me tell you something, okay? First of all, we are not trying to ruin anybody's fun. As I've said before, if anything is trying to ruin your fun, it's the Bible. We're just merely preaching what it says. But secondly, truly, the Bible is not trying to ruin anybody's fun, brothers and sisters. No, what the Bible is trying to do is it's trying to protect us. It's trying to spare us the ruin and the destruction that comes when we choose to live outside of God's will. And that's really what this all comes down to. And that's why in the remaining time that I have, what I want to do is I want to share with you what I hope are a few very practical statements that we can take out of this passage. What do we learn from this passage? Well, there's a few thoughts. The first one is this one. We need to seek to feed our spiritual needs as deliberately as we seek to feed our physical needs. We need to seek to feed our spiritual needs as deliberately as we seek to feed our physical needs. You know, there is a danger, brothers and sisters, out of this message. And the danger is that some of you go, or you listen to this message, and you think, oh, this message would be perfect for someone who isn't here right now. Some of you throughout this message have been thinking, oh, I wish my son were here with me. I wish my brother had come. When I come home, I'm going to send this message to my granddaughter in college because she needs to hear this message. Well, let me make something clear to you. This message is not just for people who aren't here today. This message is for all of us. Remember, Solomon was raised in a God-fearing home. And if you read the book of 1 Kings, you will see that Solomon started out with a great faith in his life. And yet, look at where he ended up. Look at where he got to. And if that is not a warning to every single one of us Christians in this room, I don't know what is. You see, the truth is, we all have a little Solomon within us. The same temptations, the same desires that overtook Solomon, we also have within us, which means that we can experience the same drift from God that Solomon experienced. So how do we guard against that? Well, I know what's true for me. And what's true for me is that the, the, the less time I spend with God, the more attractive sin becomes. The less time I spend in God's word, the less time I spend in prayer, the less time I spend in church surrounded by other believers, the more attractive things outside of God become. And of course that makes sense. You know, we are every bit as much spiritual as we are physical, brothers and sisters. 
Now, can you imagine not feeding your physical bodies for a week? How would you feel? You would feel miserable. Well, listen, there are some people who only feed their spiritual bodies once every couple of weeks when they come to church. Well, if that describes you, guess what? You are spiritually starved. Of course you're going to feel some degree of emptiness. Of course the allure of pleasure and sin is going to grab a hold of you. Of course things outside of God are going to appear more attractive. You're starving. That's why a regular daily routine of spending time with Jesus, a regular daily routine of spending time in his word, of spending time in his prayer, in prayer, and a regular weekly routine at least of coming to church and being surrounded by other Christians, that's why these things are so important. We need to prioritize the spiritual needs that we have in our life. That's why I'd encourage you, if you haven't already, to download the Bible in One Year app that we go through as a church. We'll put a picture of it on the screen so you make sure you have the right one. This is such an incredible app, men and women. It breaks up the Bible in 365 daily pieces, and you can read through it. It takes about 15, 20 minutes to read through each day. And if you haven't been doing it throughout this year, we're right at the very middle of the year, right? So this is a great time to start. And so that's a way to spend good time in God's Word every day. And then, in addition to that, I'd encourage you to spend time in prayer every day, to spend time worshiping God, to make sure, especially in this crazy summer season where there's a lot of vacations, that every time you're back home, that you go to church and you surround yourself with other believers. The more we feed the spiritual side of us, the less attractive sin becomes and the less likely we are to go down the destructive road of Solomon. That's the first lesson. The second lesson is this. Once we have put Jesus first in our life, then we can put pleasure in its proper place. Once we have our spiritual needs prioritized, then we can take a proper look at pleasure. You see, there's another bad extreme that can come out of this message. And that is that some people can think, as a result of what I've been talking about, that anything that provides pleasure or anything that feels good to us is wrong and it's a sin. And indeed, that's where some Christians took a passage like this decades ago. Well, brothers and sisters, I want to let you know that nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the Bible makes it clear many of the things that provide pleasure in this life, indeed some of the very things that Solomon tried, these are actually gifts from God that he has given us to enjoy. Paul makes this clear in 1 Timothy 4.4 and again in 1 Timothy 6.17 and you can look these verses up later. But what Paul says here is many of the things that provide pleasure in this life are God's gifts for us to enjoy. But here's the key. They only stay gifts when we practice them in the way that God intended for them to be practiced. So what do I mean by that? Well, let me use an example. Let me take intimacy. And all of you adults, you know what I'm talking about when I say that. Listen, intimacy is an incredible gift from God that he has given us to enjoy. But intimacy is a gift from God that has some very clear parameters around it. It's only to be practiced by one man and one woman in a marriage relationship. Now, when we practice it in that way, there is much to enjoy in intimacy. And God wants us to enjoy it. Because that's putting intimacy, that's putting pleasure in its proper place. And the same thing goes with many pleasures in this life. An indulgent meal, a vacation, a big purchase. Those are great things that God wants us to enjoy in moderation. Where we get into trouble and where Solomon got into trouble is we do with those things what God never intended for us to do with those things. 
So what does that mean for us very practically? Well, what that means for us, for example, is it is okay to take that vacation that you are planning to take, okay? I don't want anybody to cancel a vacation out of this particular message. It's okay to do that. And it's okay to enjoy the 4th of July, the irony of having to teach this message the weekend before the 4th of July, right? God has a sense of humor. It's okay to enjoy the 4th of July. It's okay to enjoy your vacation. But life can't become about vacation. Because then they become your God. And then they're no longer enjoyable anymore. And the same goes with many pleasures. Listen, it's okay to experience an indulgent meal. It's okay to splurge every once in a while. Food is an incredible gift from God. Well-made food is an incredible gift from God. But it's not healthy to do that every day. And if you do it every day, it stops being enjoyable anymore. You know, my family and I, we don't go to Disneyland really anymore, but when we used to. It was amazing to me the number of people who would walk around the so-called happiest place on earth looking miserable and angry. And it was clear that many of them, they were those annual pass holders who went every single week or every single day and the thrill and the joy had been lost for them. And that's when you know pleasure is not in its proper place anymore in your life. You want to know that pleasure is in its proper place in your life? Two questions you need to answer. One, are you practicing it in the way that God wants it to be practiced? And two, does it still bring you enjoyment and excitement to do it? Or has it become routine? If you can't answer yes to both of those questions, that means that pleasure is in a place where it's not supposed to be. And so I ask you, is there anything you need to cut back on in your life this week? Is there anything you need to cut out Or is there anything you need to hit the pause button on? Is there anything that you need to stop doing for a time so that it can become enjoyable again? And by the way, this also applies to our children. I read a story just this past week in the New York Times that said that it is really good during the summer months to allow our kids and grandkids to get bored. Because they need to be taught that not everything can be a thrill 24-7. And it's often that boredom that leads then to creativity. Pleasure is great when pleasure is put in its proper place. That's the second lesson. And then the final lesson is this. If we're in too deep, we need to know that there's help and there's hope. If we're in too deep, we need to know that there's help and there's hope. I would be missing something very big in this message if I didn't address those for whom they are really struggling with what we're talking about. And specifically, I'm talking about those who may be struggling with an addiction here today. Alcohol, sex, pornography, gambling, uh, prescription drugs, you name it. And here's what I want to let you know. If you are struggling with an addiction here today, we are not here to shame you. We have said it several times before, at Friends Church, we are not a country club. We are a hospital. Everybody in this room has been sick before. And we are all, to a certain extent, still struggling with sickness because struggling with sin is a lifelong battle. And it doesn't matter to us how you got to where you are. We just want to help you get out. That's why in the back wall, we're going to put a QR code and also a website. And it's a link to our care resources here at Friends Church. And if you go to that website, you will see some of the resources that we have to help you here. Also, on our carts throughout the worship center and also on the crosses throughout the worship center, we have these cards. And these link to the same website. And so if you like something physical, you can pick one of these up for yourself. Or you can pick one up for someone that you love. But let me make this clear. 
No matter what you're battling today, there's hope. And it doesn't matter how deep you are, it is never too late. There is always help. And we want to help you. So let us help you. But you need to know, brothers and sisters, where all this help starts. And it starts with Jesus. There will be no lasting satisfaction in your life. There will be no lasting fulfillment until you turn to Jesus because he is the only one who can fulfill the deepest longings in our soul. As I was working on this message this past week, I felt like God really impressed upon my heart that a number of people these days are really tired. And some people are tired as a result of what we're talking about here today. People are tired of trying to find meaning in things that can't fulfill. They're, they're tired of wanting to but not being able to stop something that's become an addiction. And they're tired of living the tension of, of spending one half of your life following Jesus and one half of your life seeking after the things that the rest of the world seeks after. Well, if that describes you, I want to let you know right now Jesus is calling out to you. And he's asking you to surrender to him. And if you do, you will experience the truth of Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, which is one of the greatest promises that Jesus gives us in Scripture. And that is this, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's what Jesus promises us. He promises rest. And that's why as we close here right now, I want to give you an opportunity to turn to Jesus. Some of you maybe for the first time. Some of you maybe for the first time in a while. But I want to give you the opportunity to, to come to Jesus and to experience that rest that he offers. And so would you do me a favor? Would you just bow your heads with me right now? And with your heads bowed, I just want to pray over all of us. So Father God, we just come before you. Lord, and I know that there are some people here, God, that they are tired. And that tiredness can come from a number of different things, Lord. But there are some people who are tired of, of battling something in their own power that we were never meant to battle in our own power. We're tired of turning to things other than Jesus to find the satisfaction and fulfillment that we need. We're tired of living half in and half out and, and the toll that that's taking on us. And Lord, what is so amazing is your son Jesus, he just opens his arm and he says, anybody who is tired, for whatever reason whatsoever, you can come to me and you will find rest. And so God, right now, I pray that those who are tired, that they would run to Jesus. If it's for the first time, God, I pray that there would be a recognition, Lord, of, of their own sinfulness and the forgiveness that you offer through the death of your son Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. And they would put their faith and trust in Jesus, Lord, and they would feel the, the eternal rest that you give us, God, the rest that will last into eternity. And for those maybe who have drifted away from him right now, Lord, I pray that you would know that anything that they have done in their past, it doesn't matter, God, it is forgiven because of what your son Jesus did on the cross. And we have the opportunity now to follow after you and find what it is that we are longing for. Find what it is that we are searching for. And so God, we thank you that you are a good, kind, gracious God who is always calling us back to you. Always calling us to be in relationship with you so that we can find what it is that we are looking for, Lord. And as we sing this final song that just says that and acknowledges that, Father, I just pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just fill this room and we would feel your goodness and your love in this place, Lord. And we would come back to you and find the rest that we're looking for. 
And so, Father, I pray that you would accept this final song as just an offering to you, Lord. Would you be pleased in and through it, God? And we ask all this in your son's name and all God's people said, amen.